All right, we are back with our next case. This is case number 21396, Klutz Allison versus Noah's Playlife Preschool. I would like to thank our clerk, Eddie Sanders, and our deputy, uh, uh, deputy clerk, Richard Lemelard. Lemelard. All right, appellant, counsel to the appellant. Um, I would like to reserve uh, seven minutes of time for rebuttal, please. Okay. Uh, may it please the court, my name is Dwayne Jones. I'm with Hedrick Gardner, Kinchelow, and Garofalo, and I represent the defendants in this matter. Um, I'm going to go out of order in my brief and start with argument two. I think even if I lose argument one, I can win argument two. If I win argument two, I think I win argument three. So certainly if you have any questions, I'll answer about argument one, hopefully get to it at the end. Um, sort of a few key dates here. In 2010, uh, Mrs. Ellison had a, a, a reconstructive knee surgery. Uh, this was before any injury at work. Um, on August 5th, 2013, uh, she fell at work. She fell off a ladder and hit her knee. The Industrial Commission in a previous hearing ultimately concluded that that fall on her right knee was uh, a compensable injury. And that's important because what that does, typically in workers' compensation claims, the plaintiff always has the burden of proving that whatever treatment they have of their injury is related to the, to the compensable incident. Um, but once the commission deems this injury to have occurred to be compensable, um, it creates what's called the Parsons presumption. And that means that the employer, the defendant, my client, um, has to, it, it switches, and we have to come forward with evidence that it's not related as opposed to the plaintiff initially coming forward with evidence that it is related. Um, so the Parsons presumption, though, is a rebuttable pr presumption. And there's three cases, I think, uh, there's many cases, but the, the three, the Renegar case, the Parsons case, the Perez case, and the Gonzalez case, I think set it up as an evidentiary presumption. It's certainly rebuttable. And it was talking about uh, produ production of evidence. So it's rebuttable, and the case law says that the employer has the burden of producing evidence showing that the treatment is not directly related to the compensable injury. Now, in conclusion of law number four, the full commission said that defendants produced no evidence that it was related. And, and that's just simply not true. And I think that that's where, again, the, at least the beginning of their error um, defendants have clearly produced evidence um, that the treatment, this, this, uh, and what this is, is uh, that uh, the the knee replacement, the the hardware in the knee replacement has become loose, and so the question is, is it related to that fall, or was it going to happen anyway? Um, <clears throat> Dr. Commodore testified that the hardware loosening in plaintiff's knee was not caused by the uh, August 5th incident. That's on page 32. Testified that the cause was uh, the way that the hardware was put in to begin with, and also uh, Mrs. Ellison's uh, weight and her body structure. And he, he clearly says that on, again on page 32. Um, he was asked, "Do you have any reason to believe that the August 5, 2013 incident caused her hardware to loosen?" Answers: No. 
Um, so, I mean, there, there, there's certainly more, and, and one of them is, is when Dr. Commodore was talking, he said, well, basically, if, if that trauma caused it to loosen, then the bone would likely have broken, and we would be able to see fragments of the bone, either on the x-rays or MRIs or whatever, or even eventually when you go in to have surgery. And there was never any evidence of that fracture, and that's what he conditioned it upon. Um, so, again, he says no. And again, when asked was the, the need for the replacement, um, the, the second replacement, uh, directly related to the incident, he answered she had longstanding osteoarthritis of her knees, and whether she had an accident or not, she was going to progress and eventually need knee replacement. So again, I think that's directly, that is competent evidence that it is not related. Can I ask you a question? We've got this, this conclusion here. In the present case, defendants presented no evidence to establish that plaintiff's current right knee condition is unrelated, right? Is that the same as saying no credible evidence? Aren't they the judges of credibility and can believe some evidence and not the other? If they determined there was no evidence, isn't that the same as determining no credible evidence? Well, they never evidence? said that Dr. Commodore's testimony was somehow incompetent or uncredible. Does there have to be a finding of that? Yes, I think if they're going to, I mean, again, that's, so, yes, it's evidence that was presented. Yes, there has to, you have to then come back and say that that evidence is, is incompetent. On its face, as I just read it, I mean, it's, it certainly sounds like evidence that says it's not directly related. So, yes, you've got to make a finding that comes back and says defendants have produced this evidence, but it's not credible, it's not competent. Now, again, they later rely upon Dr. Commodore, so I think it's going to be hard for them. They're going to have to say he was not credible in his first deposition and extremely credible in his second deposition. So, and again, it's not even credibility. It's not the weighing of the evidence. Like, again, they could, they could certainly say if there was another doctor, they could say that, that we assign more weight to that doctor. But that gets to the second part that I'm about to get to. This is a production of competent evidence. Defendants produce competent evidence that it was not related. The presumption disappears and the burden of production pr proof goes back to the plaintiff. So, yes, I would, I think I slightly disagree with the way that you asked the question or, or what you were inferring in that at this point in time, we're not necessarily, I mean, again, if it's not competent evidence, if I got Leroy from the truck stop to testify to that, yes, you could deem that incompetent and, and kick defendants out at that point. But would there have to be a finding that it was incompetent, is my question, before there's a conclusion that there was no evidence? Yes. I think so. So, um, so and, and this is important and why I think sometimes it gets overlooked. And so, again, most of the time when we have these cases, defendants have their expert doctor and plaintiff has their expert doctor. And, of course, our doctor is saying it's not related and their doctor is saying it is related. And, and I think this kind of maybe gets to your point other than the direct about the, the finding, but typically it doesn't matter. We produce competent evidence, okay, whether the presumption disappears or not, then the full commission can assign greater weight to plaintiff's doctors and defendants are going to lose, right? So you, you sort of sometimes skip over the step, but I think it's an important step that has to be taken, and certainly when we get into this case, because it, it, it should have shifted the burden of proof back to the plaintiff, and I'm going to now explain to you why that with the burden properly applied to plaintiff, that plaintiff's testimony is not sufficient to establish the causal relationship between 
this need for the, the, the second surgery, the revision surgery, and the work incident. Um, so when we come around to Dr. Commodore, his second deposition, so again, I've already told you everything where he says it's not the cause of it. And he continues to maintain that it did not cause the work, the, the, the fall did not cause the need for the second surgery. Um, on page 12 and 13, maybe it starts on 11, but I think somewhere around 12 or 13, he says the magic words that the Industrial Commission wants to hear that it materially aggravated the, the, the need to the point where she was going to have to have this uh, revision surgery. Then he comes back and he says, well, it could have. And then he comes back and they, he, he's asked, well, is it more likely than not? And he says, well, I don't know. And so that is not competent evidence sufficient to satisfy causation under uh, the Holly standard. The, 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 I mean, Holly, I guess, is the, the case that's most cited, but it goes back to Young. Several cases have said it, but you, you, if you say could have, and there's other evidence showing that it's just speculation, then that testimony is not sufficient to support causation. And again, if the burden of proof was properly on plaintiff, my argument would be, and that's, the, that's what the full commission relied upon, that testimony. Dr. Commodore testified that it materially aggravated the knee condition. Is that a finding in and of itself that he testified that? Wouldn't they have to make some more? Just a recitation of the evidence is not sufficient. Is that a, is, is that a finding? I think that is a finding. I think they testified. They made a finding that Dr. Commodore testified, testified that it materially aggravated the knee. But that is not a finding that it did, in fact, materially aggravate the knee. Correct, but even if they maybe they made the finding that it materially aggravated the knee. I'm saying even if they made that finding, it's based upon incompetent evidence. It's based upon testimony that is not sufficient to support that finding. So you're right. I'm not exactly now. I can't remember exactly how the full commission wrote it out. But what I'm stating is, regardless, even if the full commission made a finding of fact that it materially aggravated, well, ultimately I think they had to do that. Um, but if that finding is based upon, it has to be based upon evidence. And if that evidence again doesn't support that finding then it should be stricken, and again, if that finding therefore doesn't support the conclusion, the conclusion should be reversed. Um, and, and so finally, on uh, again, if you look at pages 29 and 30, again, Dr. Commodore again just comes right out and says, yeah, this is all speculation. I'm, I'm just guessing. I don't have any objective evidence for my opinion. And that's amplified on pages 28 and 29, um, when he essentially just says, well, I don't have any evidence. Um, he had testified one time that so the, the fall occurred in 2013. She had x-rays done in 2015 that, that based upon the x-rays showed no evidence of any loosening. And then Dr. Commodore treated her in 2017. He took x-rays. And in 2017, there was some evidence of loosening. But again, if the fall happened in 2013, he was asked, well, wouldn't the x-ray in 2015, shouldn't that have shown it? And he said, yes, um, it should have, but it didn't. And so he's like, well, how can you explain it? He's like, how can you explain that the fall caused it? 
because um, it's the fall cause that we should have seen this evidence in 2015. And he basically says, I can't. Well, how do you explain it? He says, well, I, the fall had to have done something. And that was his only explanation. That is insufficient to support causation. Um, if you have no other questions on that, I'll go on to the, the bariatric surgery. Um, now, again, if, if the need for the knee surgery is not compensable, this issue becomes irrelevant. But if you were to even if you were to affirm the full commission's determination that the that the knee surgery is related, um, I would still ask and think that the law supports reversing the uh, bariatric surgery. And this argument is really just going to come down to what does directly related mean? Um, you know, we have 97 to, and now I'm going to forget the third part. I think it's 19. There's the definition of medical compensation um, that describes medical compensation as any medical treatment um, required to uh, provide relief or um, uh, help in the period of disability. And you also have 9725, which says, again, if it's an compensable claim, employers must pay medical compensation. Now, when we go, we can go back to that Parsons case uh, for another reason. And in Parsons, it said, but because I, you know, when I'm sitting there preparing for this thing, I'm looking at the statutes and the plain language of the statutes, 97.2 says reasonably related, the full commission has the authority to award it. And then 97.25 just says, yep, yeah, employer's got to pay for it. When you go back to Parsons, it explains it. Logically implicit, even though it's not specifically stated, logically implicit in this 9725 is a requirement that the future medical treatment be directly related to the original compensable injury. Directly related. And I will submit to you that having to have a surgery, and again, assuming that you, that you find the, the knee surgery to be related, in order, to, in order to have that knee surgery, she has to lose weight. So making defendants pay for the, the weight loss prior to her undergoing that surgery, again, you can sit there and connect some series of dots, but I think that you have stated that it is therefore indirectly related, and it must be directly related. Doesn't the full commission do that all the time with things like smoking sensation? Like, you know, they, they ordered an employer to pay for that before an employee can have a bone graft. So anything that, you know, shows that smoking inhibits the recovery. Don't they do that constantly? I, well, I don't know about constantly. I've certainly been involved in it. I've certainly advised my clients to pay for smoking cessation programs. Um, but that's because smoking cessation programs aren't expensive, and it was just better to give up on it then. I do not agree that it is related. Um. But but just to sort of play devil's advocate, if she did not have to have the knee surgery, then she would not have to lose weight, correct? Well, there's some t testimony that I, I think that uh, in, in plaintiff's brief, he characterized the, the testimony that way. But, uh, you know, I want to make sure that I, and I think I did that this in my reply brief, explained, I'm not disagreeing with you, Judge Collins. I mean, I think where you're, you know, I'm, and I'm not trying to split hairs. 
but she needed to have the surgery anyway, and there's a doctor that says that. Um, and, and he had recommended a long time ago that she lose weight. So I'm not going to go for a strict but for. Certainly, in, in order to have the surgery, she had to have the, the weight loss surgery. Um, and if she had not had the surgery, she, she certainly could have went along without having the weight loss surgery. But the doctors had recommended that she lose weight. Sure. And, I mean, that's the fact that there may be other, other benefits from that are, are not really before us. Correct. The question is, did she have to lose weight before the surgery? Yes. Did she have to have the surgery if we went that route? Yes. That seems directly related. But you're but arguing would, to the contrary. I would disagree. I think that you've made two leaps, and that is indirectly related. Okay. Now, I will go and say, um, and by, what I mean by directly related, when, the, when, when, when a, an employer would have to pay for it. So let's say you have a person who maybe is not overweight, maybe, maybe is not as healthy as they should be. Maybe they're getting close to overweight but not there yet. And they have a, a, some, some sort of an injury or they break their legs or they injure their back severely, and then they, have, they, they become immobile you know, for some period of time, six months, seven months, eight months, and they really they can't move around anymore. And after they have that injury, they gain a, a tremendous amount of weight. And then they have to have a surgery. Yes, then the weight gain itself is directly related to the injury, so you, I think you would be required to pay it. But here, uh, the, the, the medical records in the testimony, she was overweight well before this injury. There's nothing about the injury that caused her to gain weight. So the injury itself did not directly cause the weight gain. Therefore, yes, defendants should not be allowed to it should not be forced to pay for that treatment. It is not directly related. If we were looking at some other condition, for example, uh, let's just say high blood pressure or something that had to be under control before surgery, is that a different, is that a different story or is that the exact same scenario, just a different medical condition? Um, I think it would be the, the similar situation to this one and, again, just anecdotally, um, uh, a, a long time ago, I had a case where the guy could not um, undergo the surgery because he had a heart condition, and I can't remember what was supposed to happen. To, to, I think he had to have something done to his heart. We denied that treatment, and that never made it to litigation. But I took the position then that we didn't have to pay for the we, – we didn't cause the heart problem, so we didn't have to pay for the uh, resolution of the heart problem, even though he had to have that resolved before he underwent – and I think that was actually knee surgery, too. So it's a, it's a pre-existing condition that, that you do not have to remedy before you remedy the actual injury. Is that your argument? Well, a pre-existing condition that was aggravated by compensable injury, that, that might work. But a pre-existing injury that is, has no relation to the injury is not required to be paid. And, again, Judge Jackson, you asked me that about the smoking cessation. What I can say is there is no case before today that has stretched 9725 to the point that the full no, no, that the full commission stretched it. I think the full commission has stretched it before, but this court nor the Supreme Court has ever stretched it that far. And I think there's a reason for that. It, you, you can't stretch it but so far. It's wrong to stretch it this far. And if you approve it, this will be the first court to have stretched it to say that what I would say indirect treatment you, you will have deemed direct, directly related treatment.
And so, and the, the word that I wanted to use before that I forgot was the, and I just like pronouncing this word, that the natural sequela of an injury, um, again, if you, if, if you, you have an injury and, and, there, and as a result of the injury you lose weight, defendants would certainly be responsible for, and that, that weight gain was causing you problems, then defendants would be, the employer would be responsible for that treatment because, again, that condition sprung from the injury. Well, what if, what if someone was um, not having a problem, the, the weight was large, but, you know, then they had to have knee surgery, and the doctor said in order for this knee surgery to bring you relief, you're going to need to lose some weight. Would that be different? I'm, I'm sorry. I think that's what we're. I don't think it would be different. I think it's exactly what we have. So I'm, I'm confused. Well, I think I think what you have here is you have a surgery that is recommended, and the doctors have said you have to lose weight to have the surgery. But I'm, I'm just wondering how is that different than if not needing the surgery, but if the doctor said you got a knee injury. And we need to get your weight down. Oh, so and so you're not able to do it by exercise. So this is your only option, you know, type of thing. No, I think that the, the, the person should lose weight, but I don't know that the defendant should have to pay for them to lose weight, even though losing weight might help out the knee injury. Um, I'm trying to think if I've ever, again, just at least anecdotally had to deal with something like that, and I can't come up with anything right now. So I don't know of any case. Again, I don't think there is a case that I can cite to that says it. Again, just to, trying to see if that's something, again, that maybe we would have done sort of like the smoking cessation, but I can't. Nothing's coming to mind. But the full commission has, in fact, ordered this type of surgery for. Is that correct? I believe that... Uh, I'm going to say yes, uh, and I think the cases are in plaintiff's uh, brief. Can, I, can we jump back to the Parsons presumption and the evidence or the lack thereof um, that when it shifted? Um, and, and in Appley's brief, they cite um, to page 33. Um, the question is, I mean, and you can read the brief, but is, is, it, is it your argument that when a doctor's testimony in deposition is inconsistent, that that automatically deems that testimony to be insufficient. It, it, it's not competent to support any conclusion. If they say in one place definitively that this, this fall caused this knee replacement to happen or caused this injury, anything else that, that goes contrary, then their testimony is, is insufficient. Uh, well, I would cite the two cases. Um, one is in my brief, one is not. So just if you'll indulge me to, to point another case out. Um, you know, I said, and this is slightly different than I think the could-have testimony, um, but, but Holly clearly says that if, if it's could-have and there's other evidence to show in speculation, um, then, then it's not confident. Here, I, I get it. We have actually a firm statement, a could-have statement, and then a I don't know statement. Um, now, I think that Holly still applies there and that when you look at what is Dr. Commodore saying, does he know what he's talking about or does he know to a reasonable degree of medical certainty, more likely than not, you know, the standards that we use to show is that statement 
sufficient to support causation. I think he doesn't. Um, and so the, the, the other cases from this court, there's the, the Chambers decision, the Chambers the Transit Management, it was a, went up to the Supreme Court, and that's the, the case that everybody cites. I think I might have cited that one in my brief. But the Court of Appeals in, this, in, in that case, Judge Jackson, now Justice Jackson, um, wrote um, an opinion talking about deposition testimonies because we also have the Alexander v. Walmart case, which I think came out right about the same time as the Chambers Court of Appeals opinion. And that's where uh, Judge Hudson, now Justice Hudson, was talking about that you can't go back or, you know, when defendants come to you and ask you to go back and pick up snippets, you can't do that. I'm, I'm getting away from my point. Justice Jackson stated in her dissent um, that, that you can't treat the depositions as just this part and this part and this part. And if they say the magic words over here, but elsewhere there is other statements that amplify that answer, clarify that answer, explain that answer, then yes, you are required to look at that part of the deposition transcript too. And, and that's what I've asked you to do. If, if you apply the standard of review so strictly that if this sentence, the, the full commission found this sentence and you can't do anything about it, then, then I'll lose. But I don't think that's, I don't think you're limited to that. And I think you're actually required to say, did Dr. Commodore produce through his deposition testimony as a whole, competent evidence to support that this uh, fall materially aggravated her knee condition to the point where she required the surgery. So if we are looking at the deposition testimony as a whole, did the full commission look at the deposition testimony as a whole? I mean, well, is, that, is that their, their standard, correct? I mean, they have the Yes, I think that, I mean, again, it's, it's, you're trying to find out is the testimony sufficient. Right. I do not think that the full commission looked at it as a whole because I think he clearly says, I don't know, and they did not put that in their opinion and award their findings of fact. So my question is, what is our standard of review if we're both looking at the same piece of paper and we're both looking to determine whether it's sufficient? Do we, is it a de novo review of ours of their review of the deposition? Yes, because you're reviewing whether or not the evidence is sufficient to, for, to support the finding and whether that finding is sufficient to support the conclusion of law. The conclusions of law are reviewable de novo. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, they concluded that this testimony was sufficient to meet the causation standard. You can go back and look at it and ask the question, is it sufficient? If the answer to that, thing, if the answer to that question is no, then you have to reverse the conclusion. And, and that's what I'm asking you to do. That's what my argument is. It is not sufficient for the reasons I've said. Please review that and please reverse the conclusion. Again, Mr. Shelby's going to tell you it entirely different, but I'll let him do that. I have uh, three and a half minutes left. I would like to save some rebuttal time, but I'll answer your questions right now if you have them. May it please the court, my name is David Shelby. I represent Ms. Robin Klutz Ellison in this matter. Uh, you know, it's funny, you prepare for these things and you get up here and I think I'm completely off the reservation of my notes at this point. Um, but I wanted to start with addressing, since Mr. Jones did, I wanted to start with addressing the Parsons presumption. And I find his argument somewhat interesting in that as I understood, well, let's go back a little bit. Let's go back a little bit. 
prior to any of this litigation currently, there was a pre previous case where the Deputy Commissioner, Deputy Commissioner Hollander, ruled in this matter, cited in our brief. It's not in the defendant's. But specifically, Deputy Commissioner Hollander said in a conclusion of law, which I would argue is probably both a conclusion of law, a finding of fact, and also an award, um, and this was unappealed by the defendants, since the plaintiff sustained a material aggravation of a pre-existing right knee condition and left shoulder condition, plaintiff is entitled to receive past, present, future medical treatment relating to her left shoulder and right knee injuries. So I think that's where the defendant starts with that document, that decision created the Parsons presumption. The defendant then says, well, Dr. Commodore, so, so we're starting out with the plaintiff has a presumption of relationship. And then the defendant says, well, Dr. Commodore said there was a firm statement that the fall aggravated the right knee injury. There was a could have statement and there was an I don't know statement. But the commission is required to look at this testimony as a whole. And if that's, the defendant is jumping to the presumption that when he said, I don't know, we were, we, well, they're jumping to the presumption that when he said, I don't know, we rebutted the presumption. The commission is required to look at this as a whole. And looking at it as a whole, the burden is now, Mr. Jones admits in oral argument, the burden is now shifted to them. The burden is on them to produce a preponderance of the evidence that would overcome that Parsons presumption that was created in Deputy Commissioner Hollander's opinion and award. And he admits that there are different points in Dr. Commodore's testimony. And Dr. Commodore is the only medical expert at issue. As, as Mr. Jones rightly says, this was not a plaintiff's expert versus a defendant's expert. Defendant, uh, Dr. Commodore is the only person expressing opinion. And what the defendant is saying is that when there's a presumption created, so the plaintiff is already over halfway over the line, and a presumption's created, if we have a doctor that says, yes, it did, yes, it is a material aggravation, well, it could have been a material aggravation, well, it might not have been a, a material aggravation, and then as Judge Collins rightly points out, at near the end of his deposition on page 33, says looking at a totality of the circumstances, both clinical and, and, by, and subjective, that it is related more likely than not, that that somehow is insufficient for the plaintiff to bear a burden when the plaintiff didn't have a burden. The defendant had a burden. And if Dr. Commodore's, if as the defendant argument argues, Dr. Commodore's testimony is insufficient for the plaintiff to carry a burden of causation, the plaintiff didn't have a burden of causation. The plaintiff had a presumption of causation. And so the defendant is essentially arguing that Dr. Commodore's testimony is sufficient to rebut the presumption, but not sufficient to carry the burden of causation. That is the burden they had, not the plaintiff. She had the benefit of the Parsons presumption. So it's Ms. Klutz-Ellison's position first that the defendant never adequately rebutted the Parsons presumption. Just by getting Dr. Commodore to say those magic words on direct examination doesn't rebut that presumption. As the court and Mr. Jones have, have rightly pointed out, the commission has a duty to look at this testimony as a whole. And I guess the simplest way for me to, dis, to, to sum this up with regard to the Parsons presumption 
is if the evidence after the presumption is created is a tie, plaintiff wins. Now, um, like I said, I'm completely off the reservation at this point, but moving on to the bariatric uh, surgery, um, defendant described what was necessary there as connecting the dots. And I would argue that this is not some constellation. This is not Sagittarius or, or Capricorn. We're not connecting all these different dots. But as Judge Jackson pointed out, it's a direct, and Judge Collins, I believe, it's a direct line. It is, there is ample testimony to support the commission's finding that but for the need for this knee replacement, I think Dr. Uh, Barrier, who was the plaintiff's primary care doctor, said it best, the emergent need for this weight loss is the need for the knee replacement revision, which is a compensable injury. It is a direct line. Dr. Commodore testified at length that with a body mass exceeding 40, it, they couldn't get a weight, an OR. The hospitals would not allow it. So he was saying not just general for your health, now, obviously, there are health benefits to losing weight, but he was not saying, Ms. Clutch Ellison, for your general health, you need to go lose weight. He said, to have the surgery, you are required to lose weight, you need this surgery, and he made the referral to the weight loss clinic, to the bariatric surgeon, as a part of his treatment to the knee. So this is not, you know, the, the standard is under 9725, um, is it reasonably related to affect a cure or give relief or lessen the period of disability? And, and the law is, is that that reasonable relation is soundly in the Industrial Commission's discretion. And the Commission, looking at these facts, said that there is a reasonable relation that but for, essentially, it, it is a direct causation link, but for this knee surgery, it might be advisable for Ms. El Ms. Klutz Ellison to lose weight. It might be a good thing for her. But this is why she needs it. She needs it now because she needs to have this knee revised. Uh, I think Judge Jackson's point is somewhat um, is well taken. I think the question you were asking was, was that what if there's a knee injury at work and the person's already obese? And the doctor doesn't say you've got to have the weight loss to have the surgery, but says you've got to have the weight loss to treat the injury. If you lose weight, you may not need surgery. And under those circumstances, I think it's clear to see that that is reasonably related to affect a cure to the underlying workers' compensation injury. Counsel, wh yes, where, where does <clears throat> surgery, I understand that was the recommended treatment by that provider, right? Where does surgery become the required treatment or the treatment that has to happen versus dietary uh, supplement or dietary, a dietitian plan versus a surgical plan? Where does, where does that come into play as a mandatory requirement? Is it based upon the doctor's recommendation and that being the only recommendation that is a finding by the commission? Or is that reviewable to say, hey, it could have been something else? 
Well, as I recall, and this is, I will have to say, I did not review completely Dr. Maliko's deposition because I was concentrating on the causation issues in Dr. Commodore. But as I recall, it wasn't an either-or. Before Ms. Klutz-Ellison could have the weight loss surgery, she had to go to a dietitian, is what Dr. Maliko testified, that she had to show some evidence of an initiative to weight loss on her own and that it was only after she proved those things to him that he would recommend the surgery and proceed with the surgery. But as I recall, Dr. Maliko, or Malika, I'm sorry, I can't remember the correct pronunciation, but as I recall, his testimony was that with, with her condition and her obesity, she could not get to the levels necessary without the surgery. Uh, she could not get her body mass down fast enough without the surgery. Um, and that the surgery was required. Uh, and also, I mean, you can think about there is an accepted left knee claim here. So you've got an individual with a right knee that is loose and needs to be, that has been totally replaced, needs to be revised, and a left knee injury, which Dr. Commodore said was going to ultimately require a total knee, and who's now put in a box where she can't do the physical things that would help with weight loss. And at that point, dietary and surgery is her only option. And I believe Dr. Dr. Malika testified to that, that she was sort of boxed in, for lack of better terms. Um, so I, I think it's clear that this is a matter within the commission's discretion and that it is reasonably related, that it is a direct line. Uh, this is not, would it have been beneficial? Sure, but it is not something that she would have required but for this knee injury and the need to revise the total knee replacement. There is a, a lot of different things that we see. Um, you know, would the defendants contend that if someone had to have a back surgery and they had a heart murmur and required cardiac clearance, that that cardiac clearance is not reasonably necessary to affect a cure or give relief to the back if they can't have surgery without it. Um, Judge Jackson mentioned smoking cessation, uh, particular bone grafts, it's an issue. Um, if someone has pre-existing diabetes and they have an epidural steroid injection and that requires, that causes the blood sugars to go wild, is the defendant then now contending that they don't, are not required because of their treatment um, worsen the condition to to uh, to treat the the blood sugar condition, or to help the person get their blood sugars back to normal. Uh, the in in my mind, <laughs> which is not the important mind at the present, but in my mind, um, you know, this is not this direct causation issue. The injury has to have been caused by the accident. The treatment that's then necessary has to be reasonably related under 97.25. And I think the defendant is trying to argue to the court that you have to, to ignore the fact that the injury is directly related to the accident, and you have to apply that same standard then to the treatment. And I think they're adding a requirement that is simply not there under the statute. Now, the defendants didn't really address the issue uh, in oral argument, at least they certainly do in the brief, um, the issues regarding um, the commission considering the, the additional evidence by the plaintiff. Um, I think that it is somewhat important to, to, to discuss that. 
9785 says the full commission shall review the award of good grounds shown therefore, therefore reconsider the evidence, receive further evidence, rehear the parties or their representatives, and if proper, amend the award. And the law is clear that the commission's powers with regard to its functions are plenary and that they are only um, reviewed by this court under standard of a manifest abuse of discretion and that whether good grounds exist is within the sound discretion of the commission. And at one point the defendant says, well, the, the plaintiff you know, is barred by making some of these arguments because they weren't included in their Form 44. Well, keep in mind, the Form 44 was in April. The surgery that sort of led to all this didn't occur in May. So I couldn't put those arguments in the 44 when the evidence was developing and this was ongoing and the full commission is the ultimate finder of fact. I mean, the full commission is, I've always thought, sort of this weird, this weird animal that is a cross between a trial court and an appellate court because they, while they have a style similar to this court style, they at the same time are the ultimate fact finder of the commission and can do anything with the deputy commissioner's uh, opinion award, including uh, making credibility determinations based on witnesses they never saw or heard testify live. So what in this case, when the surgery happened after the appeal was already taken, we made a motion to include additional evidence to bring the commission up to date as to what was going on. Um, the defendants had an opportunity to respond every, every, every step of the way. It's not an abuse of discretion, I don't believe, when the full commission considered the motion, did not rule on it, allowed the defendants an opportunity to respond in writing, actually had oral argument on this issue before the full commission, and then after that oral argument, entered the order allowing the additional evidence, then allowed the parties to retake Dr. Commodore's deposition, which the defendant was there and had the right to cross-examine Dr. Commodore. So I don't think you can argue successfully that that is an abuse of a court's discretion when they, they contemplated that throughout. And as I recall in, their, in the record on page 50, they discuss why they're allowing this uh, um, additional evidence. Um, so there was good grounds. And then also, Dr. Commodore, they argue that plaintiff didn't ever present an argument uh, in their brief for material aggravation until the supplemental brief. They were somehow blindsided by that, um, by the supplemental brief. And that's simply not the case. The plaintiff's motion uh, to submit additional evidence, which was some four and a half months prior to the supplemental briefs, uh, the motion was dated July 9th, 2019. It's on page 41 of the record. And the motion specifically says, plaintiff believes the necessity for the total knee revision surgery was caused or aggravated by her August 5th, 2013 fall. So that is when we're, at, that, that is when we're asking to consider the additional evidence. Four and a half months later, after we've had oral arguments, after they've responded, or after they've responded, after we've had oral arguments, after the commission is ordered, and then commission allows supplemental briefs, the defendant says, that's the first time we knew about this argument of, of aggravation. Simply not the case. It's belied by the record in front of this court. Um, 
the defendant also cites the Hall case, the Hall versus Chevrolet, Thomson Chevrolet case, um, for the proposition and arguing that the plaintiff is in some way piecemealing her case. And I think the court should look at Hall. Um, Hall is a different nature than this, this case. Hall was in a different position. In the Hall case, it's factually distinguishable. There had been a final order of the commission in the Hall case. It was not additional evidence while on appeal to the full commission. There had been a final order of the commission, and then within the time frames allowed under 9747, the two years change of condition, the, the plaintiff came back in and filed a motion for a change of condition. The Court of Appeals said, well, this is not really a motion for a change of condition. It's a motion to hear new evidence. And they actually, the defendant cites it at length in terms of what the court said about not allowing piecemeal litigation. What they didn't cite was the next paragraph in Hall, where the court goes on to say, on the other hand, mere inadvertence on his part, mere negligence without intentional withholding of evidence, keep in mind that the, the, the surgery didn't happen until after we were at the full commission, um, would not necessarily disbar a plaintiff of their rights, uh, despite the circumstances of a commission having exercised discretion and might justify the review, the, the opening of award. Again, Hall is different. There was a final award. And it goes on down at the end of the paragraph that I'm citing to say this matter is one that lies, must lie largely within the discretion of the commissioner. And ultimately what the court held in Hall, Hall was that the case was remanded to the Superior Court with directions to the Industrial Commission that they would determine, according to their own rules and legal principles applicable, whether the newly discovered evidence uh, should be admitted and whether they, they would grant rehearing on a diminished earning capacity argument. So ultimately what the Hall case said is it's in the Commission's discretion. And that was considering after there was a final award. In this case, we have a deputy commissioner's decision that was on appeal to the full commission, so there was no final award. And while it's on appeal, the plaintiff, because of an additional surgery, additional medical uh, treatment, sought to have um, additional evidence submitted to the, the, the ultimate trier of fact, the full commission. Um, the defendant points out, and, and, and rightly so, Dr. Commodore at one point in his deposition certainly said that the surgery records did not change his opinion. However, we didn't know that until we asked him. And, and again, we had the benefit of the Parsons presumption. So if Dr. Commodore's testimony, it's either competent and admissible to rebut the presumption, or it's not competent and admissible to carry the plaintiff's burden. And if that's the case, the defendants a little bit have a, having their cake and eating it too here. If that's the case, then for the purposes to where we are now, it's a tie. And if it's a tie, the Parsons presumption is not rebutted. They, they can't have it both ways. Um, Ms. Klutz Ellison would ask this court to um, affirm the commission's opinion award in her favor as to these matters. Unless the court has any further questions, that would be our, her argument. Thank you.
Thank you. Uh, just some real quick points, and I know they got to be quick because I don't have time. Um, I'm not trying to have my cake and eat it too with this Parsons presumption thing. And, and Mr. Shelby got close to what I'm trying to point out is the, the key issue. Um, and when you look at Dr. Commodore's testimony, the first deposition and the second deposition, they're not necessarily, those two depositions aren't in conflict. They're, they're not, and, and that's not what I'm saying. The first deposition stroke, spoke strictly with did it cause it, not did it materially aggravate it, did it cause it. And he unequivocally said no throughout that deposition. I think that that is competent evidence that defendants put forth that it's not related. The presumption disappears. Now we move over to the second deposition where he, he goes not, again, the, to, to say it's not caused and say it's materially aggravated aren't necessarily inconsistent. What my point is is that when he says that it's materially aggravated, then he starts guessing as to whether it is or it isn't. Um, I did not, have not never argued that his I don't know about material aggravation supports my rebuttal of the Parsons presumption. That is supported by him saying it is not caused in the evidence from the first deposition. And I'm saying that, and the burden should have shifted. So when he says I don't know, plaintiff wins, that's not correct. If, if you shift the burden, if you, and, and that's why I'm saying that's what the error is, was the, the, we rebutted the presumption, the burden should have shifted, I don't know, loses for the plaintiff. I will agree with him, but that's what happened, if you read the Gonzalez case, um, that's what happened there. The defense attorneys didn't put forth any evidence. They relied upon the one doctor who said, I don't know. And this court looked at him like, well, you didn't do anything. You know, I don't know is a, is a tie and the plaintiff wins. This is different. We put forth competent evidence to rebut the presumption. Um, just to uh, clear up real quick, again, the, and I'll acknowledge that my Form 44 arguments in there about whether he was uh, uh, barred from, from bringing those issues is, it's not the strongest argument. Um, and I also recognize that they have a, that, that this is an abuse of discretion standard. Um, what, what, what I tried to explain in the brief is, is that what was presented to me through the motion was, hey, we got to hold all this stuff off. I need new evidence put in because we had this surgery. Dr. Masanis had this surgery, and that's going to change Dr. Commodore's opinion. And if, in fact, that was true, and I said this in my brief, that's good grounds to let the evidence in. Um, but what happened was... And, and I was told, and there's an affidavit from Dr. Commodore saying, this is going to change my opinion. But then when we get to the deposition, there's nothing about the surgery that changed his opinion. He just started talking about material aggravation. But there was nothing in that surgery that talked about material aggravation. So what I was saying is what was presented to the commission and what the commission relied upon never materialized. That's why I said they had new, no good grounds in an abuse of discretion. If you don't think it's an abuse of discretion, then I lose. I would argue that it is. I'm out of time. Thank you. Okay. Thank you.